Well, we have the privilege of returning to our study in Second Peter this morning. And if you're visiting with us today, we've been studying this second letter that Peter wrote to the saints in Asia Minor. And uh, we've been looking at this since the, this past fall. And we're in chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 10 through 16 this morning. So just picking up where we left off last time in this description of false teachers. And um, Peter pulls no punches here, as you're going to see as we read this together. Second Peter chapter 2. Let's start in verse 9, just to remind us a little bit of the context. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasonably unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Father, these are not easy words to hear, um, and they're not easy words to understand and to apply to our lives, and so I pray your spirit, the same spirit who inspired Peter to write these words would now illuminate us and give us understanding into what this passage means and how it applies to our life, Lord, that you would stabilize our souls through the teaching of your word so that we would never stray from the truth of it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure you've all heard of or perhaps even used the expression, they drank the Kool-Aid, or don't drink the Kool-Aid. And it's kind of a fun expression that we use from time to time, like when we're talking about Aggies, you know, uh, or other groups like that that are very loyal to their tradition uh, you know, their school, whatever. Um, but this iconic phrase typically has a negative connotation. And it's often used to describe blind loyalty to a deranged leader or a doomed cause for which someone would be willing to die. And sadly, this expression originated with the largest mass suicide in modern history known as the Jonestown Massacre, which occurred on November 18th, 1978. I found this interesting that before the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the Jonestown Massacre was the largest incident of intentional civilian death in American history. 
Over 900 people died, and at least 300 of them were children. Now, no one ever expected that this would happen to such a dynamic, inspirational leader and his model congregation. Jim Jones, if you remember that name, was an ordained Assemblies of God minister and was later ordained a minister by the Disciples of Christ. He founded a church in Indiana called the People's Temple back in, in the 1950s, and he later moved the church to San Francisco where it flourished uh, in the 1960s and 70s. However, Reverend Jones began to openly reject traditional Christianity and promote a sort of apocalyptic, isolationist, socialistic, communistic form of religion and required his followers to turn over all their income, all their property to him and live in a communal lifestyle. And he controlled every aspect of their lives. And eventually, he ended up claiming to be a reincarnation of Buddha, Jesus, Lenin, and Gandhi. Not sure how you can fit all those in one guy. But following a period of unfavorable media publicity about the church along with his increasing paranoia, Jones constructed a commune in Guyana, down in South America in 1974, and convinced his followers to move there with him in order to escape the oppression of the United States government. Well, by 1978, reports began trickling back to the states of child abuse and, and teenagers being forced to have sex. Um, uh, there were accusations that people were being held in Jonestown against their will. And so at the request of concerned relatives of some members of what by then was considered a cult, U.S. Representative Leo Ryan led a delegation to Guyana to investigate these reports. And while boarding a return flight with some of the defectors who wanted to leave and come back to the States, Ryan and four others were gunned down by the Red Brigade, which was... Jones's army, and, uh, and he had ordered them to kill uh, the, the representative and his uh, traveling companions. Uh, Jones was called father by his followers. Um, it's no surprise that his lover, in her memoirs of Jones, says that he was a bisexual drug user. Um, and who was uh, a psychotic, a, a madman. And so after those, uh, he ordered the deaths of those um, uh, government officials, he called together all those that remained at the farm, as it was called, and uh, told them what had happened, and that it was only a matter of time before U.S. soldiers would arrive to shut them down, and so he directed them to complete the drill referred to as White Nights, which they had rever uh, rehearsed many times before in preparation for the end. And so a vat of cyanide-laced punch, it wasn't actually Kool-Aid, it was Flavor-Aid, another brand, um, was set out in the pavilion, and as parents fed their children that fatal concoction, and, and leaders gave it to the adults, most of whom who drank it willingly, while some were forced to drink it at gunpoint, Jones sat there in his big chair, sort of like a throne, and, and he spoke into a handheld microphone, and his hypnotic voice eerily echoed throughout the compound, 
as he talked about the beauty of death and the certainty that they would meet again. And in a few minutes, it was over. The members of the people's temple all died and were found several days later lying face down on the grass along with their leader who was lying on a pillow next to his chair with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to his head. Now, obviously, that's an extreme example of the deceptive and destructive nature of false teachers and their teaching, but it proves why Peter dedicated so much of this letter to warning his readers of their insidious and and poisonous presence. And this entire chapter is a scathing rebuke of false teachers who who seek to deceive and destroy God's people. And if you remember, um, I said that you could divide this chapter into three sections. Verses 1 through 3 are the denunciation of false teachers. Verses 4 through 9 uh, talk about the destruction of false teachers. And then the verses that we're going to begin to look at this morning, starting in verse 10 to the end of the chapter, you could call a description of false teachers. So in verses 1 through 3, Peter provided uh, eight warning signs of a false teacher to help us be able to spot one when we see one, when we hear one, because they don't show up with a sign that says, I'm a false teacher, right? Don't listen to me. Um, Don't give me money. Um, So we need some warning signs. So he gave us those in the first three verses. And then in verses four through nine, Peter weaved together the two themes of divine destruction and divine deliverance to confirm that God is able to rescue the godly while at the same time judging the ungodly. And now in verses 10 through 22, Peter elaborated on the extreme depravity of false teachers and why are they they so deserving of God's wrath? And in in these verses, he just just boldly calls them out and graphically, graphically described how they talk, how they act, to ensure his readers and us that we would be able to recognize these false teachers before they do irreversible harm to our churches and to our lives. And so what I want us to see uh, in the first half of this final section in verses 10 through 16, how Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter clearly exposed three sinful traits that mark the lives and ministries of false teachers. Three sinful traits that mark the lives of and ministries of false teachers. You ready? Number one is pride. Number two is lust. And number three is greed. Anything sound familiar about those three sinful traits? Well, if you are familiar with 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, just a few pages to the right, it says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... That's lust, and the lust of the eyes, that's greed, and the boastful pride of life, that's pride, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so these three sinful traits are something that not just false teachers uh, struggle with, every person on the planet struggle with. But these are three things to, to listen for and to look for in order to identify a false teacher that we should not follow. It was Jesus himself who said that false teachers can be identified the same way trees can be identified. How do you identify a tree? By its what? By its fruit. Matthew chapter 7, 
Verse 15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. These are not men coming in dressed like sheep. They're coming in dressed like shepherds. So really, a better translation, who come to you in shepherd's clothing. In other words, they look just like, you know, any other pastor, any other shepherd or elder. In fact, I was talking to somebody after first service and uh, watching a few videos of Jim Jones. Um, he looked just like me. I looked just like him when he first started. You know, standing behind a pole like this, wearing a suit, and then he just, and people out there singing songs like we sang this morning. It was very, very similar. So how do you know the difference? Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So I've worded these three points this, this morning um, in the, with the idea of fruit. In other words, the first thing we need to do is listen to their voices. We need to listen to their voices. And if you listen carefully and you, 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 look, you, you listen closely, uh, you're going to see that they are audacious. They're audacious. Secondly, we need to follow their eyes. We need to follow their eyes. And we're going to soon find out that, that they're sensuous. And then thirdly, we need to discern their hearts as best we can. And as we seek to do that, we're going to find out pretty quickly that they're covetous. They're greedy. And so let's look first of all at uh, the issue of pride. We need to listen to their voices because they're audacious. Look at verse 10. And he's tying together what he just got done saying in verses 4 through 9. This is kind of a thread that, that binds these two sections together. And he says, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. In other words, they seek to satisfy their, their fleshly desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, the things we just mentioned, their, their, their pride and their lust and their greed. But notice what else it says. It says that they also despise authority. In other words, they hate authority. They show no respect towards those who God has placed over them. They're rebellious, they're unsubmissive, and they aren't afraid to defame or defy or seek to overthrow those in authority over them, especially when they fail. It always seems like somehow we're justified in overthrowing the, the authority if it fails. And so they're daring, he said, in the middle of verse 10, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So they're bold, they're brazen, they're, they're arrogant, they're audacious, they're, they're spiritual daredevils. They're self-willed, they're, they're headstrong, they, they can't be reasoned with. They assume they're right and that everybody else is, what, wrong. And no amount of conversation can stop them from thinking and doing and saying whatever they please. And so they, they just run roughshod over everyone else's rights and opinions and interests. And they've got such, a, such an overinflated view of themselves, they even have the audacity to ridicule and blaspheme angelic authorities. 
And that phrase there, angelic majesties, um, at the end of verse 10 there, has been interpreted in, in a number of different ways. I think based on the context, the, the, it's most likely referring to fallen angels. The angels that rebelled along with Satan uh, in eternity past. Uh, they're talked about in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, in that section about the armor of God. Paul writes, for our struggle, this is Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So Paul made it clear that Satan and his minions are a formidable foe. We should not take them lightly. We should not be flippant ever in how we talk about them or to them. According to Psalm 8, 5, we, are made, we were made by God a little lower than the angels. And, and so in the present hierarchy, right, it, it, we've got angels and then you've got humans and someday that's going to flip and we're going to rule over the angels, the Bible says. But for now, the angels are worthy of our respect. And Peter says not even, not even holy angels who are greater than us and, and more powerful than us, they don't revile and blaspheme their fellow angels who rebelled against God and are, who are under his judgment. And as I mentioned previously, we know that Second Peter and Jude are companion epistles and they're often uh, paired together in, 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 in most commentaries because they're very similar to one another. Uh, in fact, some say that they borrowed from one another. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think the Spirit of God was writing through Peter and writing through Jude, and it just so happens that, you know, the same Spirit wrote both of the letters, and, and uh, he had uh, something he wanted to say towards the end of the uh, apostolic era about false teachers, because we're talking just three decades from the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you already got false teachers infiltrating the church. And so look at Jude chapter, or excuse me, verse 8. There's no chapters in Jude, just one chapter. Jude verses 8 and 9, and Jude is a good cross-reference to help us interpret some of what Peter was saying in, in, in Peter, Second Peter, and also Second Peter is a good cross-reference to interpret things that are uh, being said in Jude. But look at Jude 8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Does that sound familiar? Saying the same thing. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. So Jude points out, not even, not even Michael, the archangel, the most powerful of all angels, he recognized Satan had a position of authority in this world, which God had delegated to him, of course. And even though Satan had no power or jurisdiction over Michael, he didn't dare rebuke him, but he asked the Lord to rebuke him. False teachers, on the other hand, rush in where angels fear to tread. And they curse away at the forces of evil, which they really know nothing about. I think we see this most clearly in modern-day exorcism. Uh, if you're familiar with that, uh, there are 
self-proclaimed exorcist, even within the evangelical church, who claim to be able to cast out demons, and so they go around rebuking Satan and binding Satan. Very familiar phrases you've probably heard before. Bob Larson would probably be the most well-known exorcist. He performs live public exorcisms before capacity crowds, and he walks around with a microphone in one hand and a cross in the other. And he's taken on Satan. He's taken on the demons. And, and, and he makes all these audacious claims about uh, encounters that he's had with the paranormal. But again, as Jude mentioned uh, in, in verse 10 there, that it says, these men revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasonably, uh, unreasoning animals, by these things they're destroyed. And that's exactly what Peter said in the next verse here. Verse 12, but these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. So false teachers act like they're, they're, they're experts in, in biblical and spiritual matters, but the reality is they don't, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. They don't, they don't know God's word. They don't know God's ways. And so Peter says they resemble irrational beasts who live according to their instincts and, and cravings and serve no other purpose than to be slaughtered and served for supper like a cow or a deer. I know, ladies, that sounds harsh. You guys think they're cute. Cows are cute and deers are cute, right? But, but notice what he says, that, that since they choose to live like animals, they will die like animals. That's his point. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. In other words, they'll end up reaping what they sow. Galatians 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And so the arrogance of false teachers will come back to bite them. They'll get caught in their own traps, if you will, their own webs that they've spun to catch others. And they'll receive the judgment that they rightfully deserve for distorting God's word. Look again at Jude, verse 16. And and Jude is just describing the same false teachers that, that Peter was. They are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ and they were say, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. So the first fruit we need to examine is we need to listen to their voices. And we will soon find out that they are audacious. They were very arrogant and prideful. Secondly, we need to examine the fruit of their eyes. We need to follow their eyes. And if we do that, we'll soon find out that they are given over to sensuality. Notice verse 13. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. In other words, most people wait until it gets dark to fulfill their sinful pleasures. The Bible says that, 1 Thessalonians 5, 7, those who get drunk get drunk at night. 
And there's something, I guess, um, next level if you're a day drinker, right? There's that expression, that he'll, he, they're a day drinker. Like, they start drinking in the morning when the sun comes up. They don't even wait till night when, to crack out the, the wine or the, the alcohol. There's a reason why lights are dim in bars, in strip clubs. There's a reason why we're shocked when someone robs a bank or murders someone in, what, broad daylight. We're appalled at that. How could they do that? Most people would wait till the, till the night, try to do that, commit that crime under the cover of night. But false teachers have such a, a passion for perversion, they can't wait for the sun to go down to satisfy their, their sinful desires. And so they openly and shamelessly commit sinful acts during the day, which was even considered inappropriate by the pagans. Even the Romans looked down upon that. Notice it says they, were, they are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. God intends his people to be pure and, and holy and spotless and free from stains and blemishes. In fact, look at chapter 3. He's going to exhort us in verse 14. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And you know, he described us as his bride in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so these were, these false teachers were the exact opposite. Peter likened them to stains and scabs. And it says they were reveling in their deceptions. Some of you may notice in your translation, they give you another option there, and that is love feasts. Because one of the early manuscripts had that uh, in, in place of the word deception. In fact, Jude mentions love feast in Jude chapter, or Jude verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. So a love feast was how the church would gather together and, and enjoy fellowship. It would be like our fellowship supper. Our chili cornbread cook-off was their love feast, right? And, and it would uh, just be a time to gather and eat, eat a meal together and love on one another, and then it would climax with communion. And they would share the Lord's Supper together at the end of the love feast. And it may have been that these supposed spiritual leaders and teachers of the truth were behaving arrogantly and, and selfishly and perhaps even immorally at these church gatherings, much like those uh, in the church in Corinth who were being gluttonous and, and even getting drunk during the love feasts and dishonoring and, and dirtying the sacred ordinance of communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. And then he goes on, uh, Paul went on to 
talk about the importance of honoring uh, the Lord's Supper and to not um, take communion in an unworthy manner or else you'll drink judgment upon yourself. And that's why some of them got sick. Some of them even slept, it says, which means they what? They died. God judged them for um, defi- defiling uh, the Lord's Supper. They brought their filthiness into the church and they had become a blemish or a scab on the body of Christ. They made the church look bad. I'll never forget the story about John Calvin who was pastoring the church in Geneva, Switzerland uh, during the days of the Reformation and there was a group of uh, men in his church called the Libertines and they probably were the predecessors of today's free grace movement that basically th- says, you know, we're, we're free in Christ and we can do whatever we want to do and we, you know, we can just, it's all covered by the blood and we can just ask forgiveness. And so these men had a reputation of sleeping around with women in the church and sleeping around with women in the community and, and, and it, was, it was well known. It, it was not a, a secret. And, and so Calvin told them, uh, hey, unless you guys repent, you can't take communion. I'm not going to let you take communion any longer. So Communion Sunday showed up and so did those guys. And Calvin came down from the pulpit and he stood in front of the communion elements. And here these guys came with drawn swords and basically said, Give us, serve us communion or we will kill you. And Calvin stood his ground. And by the grace of God, they stood down <laughs> and they left. But he was guarding the Lord's Supper from defilement from these false Christians. Notice how he goes on. Peter says, they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. This is a stunning statement here that that false teachers are so driven by lust that they can't look at a woman without fantasizing about them. And trying to imagine what they look like naked or what it would be like to have sex with them. And so they preach sermons and they administer the ordinances and they counsel the members of the church. But the whole time they're lusting after the women in the church and and looking for someone to gratify themselves with and, and committing adultery with them either mentally or perhaps even physically. Remember the words of Jesus in the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. That was Jesus' way of saying, hey, take purity seriously. And get radical with how you seek to mortify the, the, the deeds of the flesh. The ancients used to say, follow a man's eyes and they will lead you to the hidden desires of his heart. You just ask my wife as we're driving down the road. She's constantly having to remind me that I'm driving and I need to keep my eyes straight ahead because I've seen all these cool cars go by. 
And I'm like, oh, check that one. That's a really nice car. And right, I, I love cars. And so it's just, I love looking at the different cars and the lines and the exhaust systems and the wheels and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm always looking around, right? Well, it kind of shows what's in my heart, where my eyes are drawn to. And notice he says, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. That word enticing there, the idea is, a, is setting a trap, using some kind of bait or lure, and, and kind of fishing, hunting analogy here, and, and false teachers are, are constantly trolling churches and, 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 and setting traps in churches and trying to lure people into sin and get them to join them in their perverted ways. Why? Because sin loves company. And who are they targeting? Unstable souls. See, it's easy for an immature believer to reason that if something's all right for a spiritual leader, it must be all right for them. And that's why false teachers target the unstable, the undiscerning, those who lack a firm doctrinal and moral foundation and they're weak in their faith and they're wobbly about what they believe and so they seduce them to believe doctrinal lies and live immoral lives. And so we need to reject wholesale any false teacher who advocates a different doctrine or lifestyle that is contrary to the word of God. And so Peter knew that the prey of false teachers is unstable souls, and so the whole point of this letter, the goal of this letter was to stabilize the saints so that we would remain steadfast. Verse one, or chapter 1, verse 12, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. He's going to end the letter in chapter 3, verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this before and be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the area of unprincipled, uh, unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A growing Christian is a guarded Christian. The best way to keep up your guard against false teachers and false teaching is to be growing in your knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Just a couple pages to the left of Peter is James. And James 1 describes this unstable person. James chapter 1, James said, hey, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you. But, verse 6, he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In other words, don't be that guy. Be the guy or the person in Ephesians chapter 4 who's been well-equipped by their pastors and teachers. They're growing in conformity to Christ. And as a result, they're no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, 
even Christ. So we need to listen to their voices. We need to look at their eyes. And thirdly, we need to discern their hearts. We need to discern their hearts. And it won't take very long to discern that they are very greedy. Notice verse 14. The last phrase, they're having a heart trained in greed. Peter's already mentioned this attribute of greed in false teachers in verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And here he says they've been trained. They have their heart trained in greed. That word trained is where we get the English word gymnasium or gymnastics, which means that what Peter was implying here is that these these false teachers are well-trained athletes when it comes to greed. They got it down. And they've practiced their financial appeals so so many times. They've become masters of manipulation and experts at exploitation. I mean, they are really good at being greedy. And they mask their greed by pleading for funds for their ministries while they live in expensive homes and drive luxury cars and wear designer clothes and fly around in private jets. I mean, just turn on Christian TV, right? And, and you, can, you can see right through it. That they're, they're wanting you to send them their seed money and, you know, I, I can't, I can't uh, waste any time going to the airport. You know, the gospel needs to get out there and so I need to have my private jet so I can get there faster and, and uh, not have to be around, you know, normal people you know, it's very distracting. You know, I need to go be, be prepared when I get there. And, uh, you know, they make all these excuses why they need these things. Well, a true servant of God is not in the ministry for money. We learned that in 1 Peter 5 when Peter was exhorting the elders to serve not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain. One of the qualifications of an elder is he must not be a lover of money, 1 Timothy 3, 3. Paul expanded on that thought in 1 Timothy 6, talking about how a godly person is a a content person, for we've brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with with these we shall be content, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and then snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge, plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I think it's an accurate description of false teachers. And then notice he just, he just, he just says it. He just says it at the end of verse 14. Accursed children. These guys are, are cursed of God. God's curse is on them. They will surely experience God's judgment. Why? Because pride and lust and greed are all deserving of God's wrath. Verse 15, he says, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. Instead of choosing the narrow path of obedience that that, that, that leads to life and, and righteousness. False teachers choose to follow their own path, which eventually inevitably leads to their destruction. 
And then he says, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Both Peter and Jude use this guy, Balaam, an Old Testament prophet, as an illustration of false prophets in their day and also false prophets in our day. Jude 11, he mentions Balaam. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. And so if you don't know anything about Balaam, just know he, he is a classic case study of what a false prophet sounds like and looks like. He embodied all three of these sinful traits, pride, lust, and greed. We don't have time to look at the Old Testament um, narrative, but it's in Numbers 22 to 24. Write that down, Numbers 22 to 24, also uh, chapters, uh, chapter 31 of Numbers, verses 1 through 16, tells the, the whole story of, of, of Balaam. Let me summarize it quickly for us. Balak was the king of Moab, and he was scared of Israel, who had just been delivered from Egypt by the mighty hand of God, and all the other uh, nations were trembling at at this, this uh, nation that was coming out with this great God who was doing all these amazing things. And so uh, this scared Moab, and so he tried to hire a prophet of God named Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam knew that God didn't want him to curse Israel, would not be pleased by him trying to curse Israel, and so he turned down the offer at first, and he, Moab had sent some men and some money uh, and trying to appeal to him, and he turned it down. But, but then... Um, Moab wasn't taking, or, or Balak wasn't taking no for an answer. And so he sent some more higher officials and some more money and sweetened the deal. And in Balaam's mind, the money was too good to pass up. And so he eventually took the job. And yet whenever he attempted to curse Israel and he went out and, and tried to curse them three times, and three times the only thing that came out of his mouth was Blessing which was not what he was getting paid for. And, and Balak, got, Balak got upset. He's like, hey, I paid you to curse these people and you're blessing them. And, and so he sent him home. Well, even though God wouldn't allow Balaam to curse Israel, Balaam knew that if Israel intermingled with the Moabites, God himself would curse them and bring judgment upon them. And so he pulled Balak aside and he, he counseled him to seduce the Israelites to participate in their idolatrous practices, which eventually led them to marrying some of the Moabite women, which God had forbidden. And we know this not from the narrative in the Old Testament. We know this from Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. It, when Jesus was addressing the church in Pergamum, he says, but I have a few things against you because you have three, there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things, sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So Balaam's words and actions threaten the very existence of God's chosen people. And even though he, he knew the right way to go, he arrogantly defied God's will and, and deliberately went astray, as Peter mentioned here, and, and, and foolishly enticed God's people to follow him down the path of moral compromise, all because of what? He coveted money. And consequently, he suffered the penalty of death. Balaam was judged by God, and when, 
when, the, when, when God told the Israelites to defeat the Midianites, he, he told them to take out Balaam in the process. And so he was eventually slain by the sword along with the, the Midianites. And so he received the wages of unrighteousness. But notice verse 16, when we'll wrap up here. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. This is the fun part of this story. When Balaam originally set out to curse Israel, he was riding his donkey, who suddenly, just for no reason, at least from Balaam's perspective, veered off the road into the field. And Balaam's like, what are you doing? And he, he, he beat him to get him back onto the road. And he wouldn't go forward, and so he pressed him into a wall, crushed his foot, which made Balaam even matter. He beat him again. And then finally, the donkey just decided, I'm just going to lie down. So the donkey just lied down, and what do you think Balaam did? Beat him a third time. See, what Balaam didn't know was a donkey had seen the angel of the Lord standing in the middle of the road with a drawn sword. Like, if you come any further, you're done. God was angry at Balaam for his rebellion, and so he was blind to the angel of the Lord, and it showed that his donkey had more sense than his stubborn, bullheaded owner. And when he whipped him the third time, that's when the donkey spoke to him in a human voice, saying, Balaam, what are you doing? Why are you beating me? I saved your life. If I had kept going, you'd be a dead man. The point is this. Balaam's greedy heart had caused him to act irrationally like one of the brute beasts mentioned in verse 12. And just like what happened to Pinocchio and his companions on Pleasure Island. Remember that story, Pinocchio on Pleasure Island? Balaam's love of money turned him into the proverbial jackass. And he became dumber than a donkey. His donkey was smarter than he was. And I think this is a good reminder that that sin makes you stupid. And ironically, God used his donkey to confront his madness. Notice he calls um, uh, uh, Balaam's sinful thought pattern and actions madness which I think is a, it was a very biblical description of, of sin. Romans 1 talks about how God gives us over to more and more sin to the point where he gives us over to a depraved mind where our minds don't even work correctly. And so when we persist in our sin, God gives us over to more sin. And at some point, we reach the level of insanity where we keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, but we suffer the same consequences every time, but we keep doing it anyway which makes no sense at all. It's madness. And so as one commentator said, Balaam, perhaps more than any other preacher in Israel's history, set his voice, his eyes, and his heart on God-forsaken ways. Some of you may remember 
the ad campaign in the 1980s, if you're my age or above, maybe, starred two crash dummies. Remember that? Kind of a public service announcement about the importance of wearing your seatbelt. And so they had these crash dummies in a car getting in all sorts of situations. And how did the commercial always end? You can learn a lot from a dummy. I think that's Peter's point here. You can learn a lot from a dummy named Balaam. And so we need to listen to their voices. We need to follow their eyes. We need to discern their hearts. We need to listen for pridefulness. We need to look for lustfulness. And we need to discern greediness. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult words to preach. These are difficult words to hear and respond to. But they're in your word, and so we know they're important words that that we need to grapple with. And so I pray that you would just stabilize our souls as your people, Lord, that we would not um, fit into that category of unstable souls, but we would be steadfast, we would be unwavering, that we would continue to grow in our knowledge of Christ and his word. And Lord, it's, it's easy to take pot shots at false teachers, but if we're honest, every one of us struggles with these same three sinful traits. Lord, I confess that I struggle with pride and with lust and with greed at points in my life. And I'm sure everyone else, if they were honest, would say the same thing. And so Lord, would you expose those sinful traits in our lives, show us them so that we can address those things, that we can seek to mortify those things so that we could be less prideful and less lustful and less greedy and more like Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.